I'm Nick Lowry, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, thanks for joining us. We sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you everything you need to take ownership of your financial, physical, and mental health. The quote for today's episode comes from a Native American proverb and says, certain things catch your eye, but pursue only those that capture your heart. Our guest today is NFL royalty, but what you'll find most impactful about him is how committed he is to making our world a better place while helping those who need it most. The best part, he leads by example every step of the way, and it's these off-field contributions that I love so much. Nick Lowry is a Hall of Fame athlete who became the all-time leading point scorer for the Kansas City Chiefs, but his entry into the NFL was anything but smooth. Nick was released or rejected 11 times by eight NFL teams. He was finally given a chance by the Chiefs, who, as history proves, made a hell of a return on their investment. Retiring after 18 seasons in the NFL, Nick is widely regarded as the most valuable kicker of all time, achieving records for most field goals in NFL history, most accurate field goal kicker in NFL history, and all-time leading point scorer for the Chiefs. Nick is far from the athlete stereotype you might imagine. He attended Harvard University, where he graduated with a master's degree from the Kennedy School of Government. Among his extraordinary list of accomplishments, Nick has served three U.S. presidents as an advisor on youth and drug policy in the White House, received the most prestigious humanitarian award an NFL player can receive, and worked tirelessly to equip the next generation with everything they need to thrive. Among his immense philanthropic endeavors, Nick is founder of Champions for the Homeless, the Nick Lowry Youth Foundation, and has run leadership programs for Native American youth for more than 20 years. In addition, Nick is a national spokesman for Canaway, which is one of the foremost CBD companies in the world and is undertaking extensive research on how CBD can improve neuroplasticity for dementia, trauma, and athletes with brain damage. In recognition of his efforts, Nick has been featured in the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, and on David Letterman twice, as well as in two feature films, including Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this episode. Nick will share his secret process to becoming the most accurate kicker in NFL history, how we can help underserved populations, including Native American communities and the homeless, the exciting research on how CBD can help restore brain function, how to quickly dust yourself off from failure, and a whole lot more. As we get started, know that the right bit of inspiration can completely transform someone's life. So if there's someone who needs to hear this episode, share it with them right now. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, let's win the day with Nick Lowry. Well, great to see you, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the Win the Day show. Thank you. You know how much I love your accent. Well, to kick things off, I want to. I want you to take us right into a moment in your NFL career when everything's on the line, win or lose, it's all on your shoulders. There are tens of thousands of people cheering and screaming at the ground. There's millions of people watching on TV. What's going through your head and, and what are you saying to yourself to give yourself the best opportunity of kicking that game-winning goal? Oh, my God, I can't believe this. I mean, seriously... 
this is not, James, a, a question of whether there's a voice. There are many voices. There is the voice of fear. There's the voice of this is the single most ridiculously pressured position in sport. I mean, maybe the exception of the goalkeeper or the players in the shootouts in soccer, but the kicker, it's 1.25 seconds. And the ball is actually caught after being snapped back 24 feet, eight yards, caught, put down, and the laces are spun if they have time and kicked in 1.25 seconds. And the ball's not spinning for under two hundredths of a second. So you have to manage that while you have 11 very large, very talented, highly paid. I mean, we're talking two to $10 million or more a year to block your kick. And so it's managing all those things. What it comes down to Something my friend, uh, Dr. John Elliott, wrote in a book, uh, Overachievement, it's, it's preparation. It is the opposite of what you think when you break it down, what nerves are. That nerves, when you're giving your book report in second grade and Betty Sue's in the front row and you're nervous and you don't do well, you think it's because of the nerves when it really was you'd never given a book report before, let alone had something in front of Betty Joe and or Betty Sue. And uh, it's about maturation and polishing of your skills combined with preparation. And when that happens, you can override those voices saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this is my job. And you trust it. So you have to trust yourself. It's really in the end, a very powerful character building litmus test for anyone because you have to, in the end, believe in yourself that you deserve to be in that focal point that is essentially what I call my office, you know, eight yards by four yards square. That's my office. If I control that area, particularly right there, which is really only four yards square with between me and the holder, in front of 80,000 people, maybe 20, 30 million on television easily. If I can control my thoughts, my emotions, my focus, then I can achieve great things. And that was learned over 11 rejections by eight NFL teams. It was learned by made field goals, and it was absolutely improved by making mistakes and missing field goals, learning how to manage yourself, just like how your podcast has gone from very good to great by doing it over and over again. Yeah, you know what I love about what you said there, Nick, and there's so much gold. So I hope anyone who's listening to the podcast or watching this on YouTube is, is starting to dissect all of those different elements. That preparation piece where if we don't have the preparation of something but we put ourselves in a situation that we suck at or we fail at, we might think, wow, we're just not good at that and go through life without thinking that we're ever good at that activity. But what I love about you is not just the persistence but it's having that will to win just to, that, that will to actually train, the will to prepare and do the, the persistence behind the scenes to make sure that you could prepare as much as possible, to practice as much as possible. Because like Michael Jordan taking the, the game-winning shot, it's exactly the same, right? It's all the work that you have done for many, many years that lead to that exact point where rather than all of the complexity of all of those different elements, is it just then coming right down to that simplicity where how tense are you feeling? Or are you actually pretty, pretty calm and smooth and focusing on just 
your body and, and mind doing what it's been prepared to do for so long? You know, um, the truth is every single day of our lives and every single game has its own unique qualities. The preparation helps it become more consistent, but every day is a little bit different. I'll never forget uh, being in the flow, one of the great terms we use today, and in the zone is another concept. Uh, in Joe Montana's uh, first game for us on national TV, uh, Monday night game in September of 1993, and uh, it's against John Elway on the Broncos, and, uh, you know, two legends, and in the end, I kicked all our points. We were up 15 to nothing on a 52-yarder, 45-yarder, 41-yarder, 38-yarder, and a 25-yarder or something like that. And I'm running back to the sidelines, and there is Joe Montana's friend, Huey Lewis, the singer, standing next to the net where I'm kicking. And uh, as I'm coming back after my fourth field goal, he looks at me like, man, this is easy for you. And I, I love that because that's a performer who has to get on stage and hit his notes. The difference is there's a natural flow because there's a melody, there's a rhythm, there's a bass line. There is a you know combination of instruments that sort of bring you into that flow, even if you don't want to in music. But you have to create your own music as an athlete. So you have to rehearse that music in the cacophony, in the chaos of practice. You have to create chaos and practice what I call um, pressure, but not neurotic pressure. So that when you get to the game, you literally say, I'm just back at practice. I'm back in James Whitaker's living room having tea and uh, practicing that so that you can bring it back. So then it comes back to, in, in essence, being a life actor and in the practice and rehearsal, bringing in all the, all the components and dimensions, literally your smell, your sight, your hearing, your touch, and using those references to project yourself into those moments when you have to kick the game-winning field goal. And by the way, the game-winning field goal might be the 25-yard gimme field goal in the first quarter, and you win by three points because you were focused, even though some people might have said, well, I'm, of course I'm going to make that. Uh, that's what I love is the preparation. And if you come to love the preparation, what I noticed today, James, when I train, I get the same sort of intensity. And you're right, it is will, but I want to comment on that too, because the role of the ego versus the role of the spirit is everything. But in those workouts today, I still get pumped up. I still have that bringing myself into that place of battle, that intensity. And so when I try to train others, I have to, I have to decrescendo that because they feel it and it's not their level of commitment yet, perhaps. Some of them love it. Some of them are a little bit um, disconcerted by it. But that's a lifelong skill. And um, just to go on, if you'll permit me, when you say, Will, thank you, it is about Will. It's about believing that you're here. God's put you here with unique gifts. This stands for GG, 2G, God-given. My friend, Todd Koshigawa, who's from Hawaii, uh, top one of the top scouts for the Texas Rangers, when they evaluate a player, they say James Whitaker has 2G. He's got God-given ability to throw the ball, to hit the ball. He's an athlete. Well, guess what? That's the beginning. And Will takes us to another level of polish and skill. And the final piece, and there's no final piece. There's always new pieces. But the next significant piece is to be able to manage your success 
by divorcing your achievements from your ego and focusing on what are those things from this stage that are building my soul as well. You look at the greatest athletes of all time. They did that internal work. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar evolved deeply into a man of soul. Russell Wilson, whose father was my teammate at Dartmouth College, a wonderful human being who founded the African-American Sports Hall of Fame, I might add. Uh, His father, Harry Russell, was the NFL Man of the Year this year. My friend Steve Largent, ironically, Hall of Famer also uh, with the Seattle Seahawks, a soulful human being. That means that I can have a tremendous will, but I also know that I can prevent it from dominating me so much that I think I'm all that. Then I stop being motivated. I stop being consistent. I, I stop being responsible to others. I stop being empathetic to my teammates. So... That's a lot, a long answer. But, yeah, there's so much good stuff there and, and so many parallels to just every every other aspect of life. And it's what I love, especially when we're talking about a time now, we're going to go into so many of the philanthropic things you've done, a lot of the different work, a lot of the business side that you've done as well. Uh, one thing I wanted to quickly mention while we're still here on the football side is I, I feel like, as I just mentioned, it's a great metaphor for life. We all go through failure. The nature of life and the nature of, of field goals is that you can never get 100%. You can never win 100% every single day. Uh, even though you retired as the most accurate field goal kicker in NFL history. So I feel like you've got that better than most. After a bad miss, did you have a process to move on without letting it affect the rest of your game? Psychology, as we learn psychology, we know that everybody is either enabled by their references to trauma or more often held back. And that's a traumatic thing. I I remember missing a 44-yard field goal left, right hash, that just went over the left upright and they called it no good in Windy Arrowhead Stadium. And I was just devastated. And I remember waking up four, five, 10, 20 times that night, literally dreaming the ball through. Please go through, please go through. So uh, the process, unfortunately, it's a little bit like a death, you know? If you care about what you do, if you care about the person you've lost, you're going to feel pain. But the beauty of it is that pain can motivate you to dig deeper, to stimulate that will, to lift up your spirit, to say, I can be even better. These gifts that I've been given, which are unique to me as they are so unique to you, and I'm glad that you're unique and in your qualities, my friend, because that's what makes life so special. So there's no process initially. I will say there's a great process Tony Robbins once shared with me, which I'd like to share with you. I know you know him well. Um, I had my worst game against the Cleveland Browns. And there's an irony to it because, uh, you know, you don't make you don't make excuses. That doesn't help. But I I missed I made a 41 yarder to tie the game. And it was the worst field conditions ever. But nobody cares. Right. But I made it. It was an ugly kick, but it went through. And um, then I missed a 45-yarder at the end of overtime uh, of regulation. They were offside, so that meant I got another shot from 40. It didn't go through again. It was weird. They both hooked left. And then in overtime, I had a 48-yarder, and that was the worst kick in history. Uh, and the next day, a half-page ad in the Kansas City Star with a picture of my head and a box spring, clown box spring exploding out of my head, And there I'd gone. What a lesson. 
from the most accurate kicker in NFL history, which I still was, by the way, to the laughing stock, at least temporarily. Now, that season, I came back and kicked a 41-yard field goal from the right hash with Joe Namath announcing the game against the Miami Dolphins, and which probably kept my job. That probably would have ended my career in Kansas City if I hadn't made that. So now in the offseason, I'm thinking through all these things, and I just, uh, to cut a long story short, I just dedicated myself to get better. Tony Robbins gave me something I'd like to share, which is how you essentially scratch up like the old plastic records we used to have eons ago. And essentially, you visualize the worst thing, the thing that's traumatized you. And I'm uh, for some women, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you've been assaulted in some way. Uh, it could be a huge mistake, the worst speech you ever gave. <laughs> Who knows what it is? It could be a, you know, a fight where you were you know, badly hurt. Um, it could be a missed field goal. And he said, visualize that. So I did. He said, now, get the most ridiculous sound in your head, because music is always our ally in grounding the cellular memory or reprogramming it. He said, play Looney Tunes, which is my favorite song. Well, by the way, why aren't those cartoons on anymore? And play that. And then play that memory, not forwards, but backwards. So suddenly I had to envision the field goal not going from my kick, but from missing the goalpost all the way back in slow motion with the music playing to when I kicked it. And do that over and over again. And what that does and what that did was interrupt my memory. And I, you see the smog come on my face. It's just impossible to think of it quite the same way. Does it still bother me? Yes. But guess what? The next year, I led the NFL in scoring. I was first team all pro. I had 24 field goals in a row. Uh, I set a team record with the best percentage ever. Um, and the next year after that, I had 21 more field goals in a row. The next year after that, I was all pro. So I, I just said to myself, I made the decision. I am never going to allow that feeling to ever happen again. And so I got into that Cleveland game, that debacle, uh, 77%. And after that, I kicked it 86% the rest of my career. So all of us can take the worst parts of our careers and turn them into something that takes us to a new level. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, there, there's so much great stuff there. Uh, so many people I talk to who they, they're busy complaining about their circumstances, but I feel like a lot of the lessons that you just mentioned there, that exact same amount of energy that we use to actually complain about our circumstances, we can simply redirect to being able to create the circumstances that we want, which empowers us to be able to have some amazing things happen in the future. Like obviously you mentioned there with the, with the field goal percentage, you were able to continue for the rest of your, your career. Yeah, well... Um, hold on. I want to get my view back. So I see you better. There we go. Um, what great lessons for life. We never stop making mistakes. We're human. And the more we seek to be great. And, and I like to think continuing that with that theme of will, ego achievement, and then spiritual development, what I call the art of being soul fish. It's not like we stop making mistakes. It's that we are still eager and young in spirit to keep learning and keep growing and making more and more of a contribution. I mean, you and I with Think and Grow Rich, 
the legacy tour, um, you know, we surrounded ourselves with great people like Brandon Adams. Hi, Brandon. We love you, brother. And, uh, you know, Didi Wong and Sharon Lecter and on and on. Um, John Shin, all these people. And what does that do if it doesn't play a music around us that we absorb and it raises our game and our consciousness? Um, so I love this because it's essentially the art of mentoring ourselves and taking our game to a new level. Now, I look at you that way, my friend. I mean, you having something like this is one of the things that helps people get better and put out good energy in the midst of all the, the insanity we've gone through the past year. Sure. You know, one of the big things I wanted to ask about you is where does that intense curiosity come from to keep leveling up with the impact that you want to have? I mean, the impact that you're making on the world, is it like 0.0001% of people who can have that same level of impact? You are doing it better than pretty much anyone I know. And I'm really excited to, to dive into all of those different, different things. Well, thank you. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, you work with, you, you've worked with and continue to work with a lot of kids and young adults who come from difficult backgrounds. What has football, which I know you're a massive advocate of American football or sports more broadly, given those individuals off the field who may have come from some very difficult backgrounds? What has football given them? Uh, it's given them structure. It's given them attention. People look at them, they follow them, they give them feedback. Uh, it's given them the challenge to manage their success to realize that uh, if they spend their time with the trophies, and there's a trophy right there. I mean, I love trophies. That's the Byron Wizard White Award. And, and ask me about that because that has a powerful story about mentorship, by the way. Um, football enables them to deal with loss, to have worked your tail off and still lost, to have done everything you thought you could and still missed the field goal, still made a mistake, still lost, to have done your job. And be part of that team and, and live with the loss, even though you did your job, to still be part of that team and own that loss together. I mean, that's something that's missing today, I really believe, is, um, you know, we have these wars fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, and no one knows what sacrifices were made by those soldiers. World War II, as you and I know, everybody had to pitch in. We were going against Hitler. We're going against uh, the Japanese threat. We're going against Mussolini and um, everyone, women, men, everyone was doing something. And, and it was a clear cause. Uh, maybe today's causes are more difficult, but in the end, everybody knew what sacrifice was. So I think football, going back to football, uh, is about teaching you to be part of a team, to care about the team and also recognize you represent a community. Football uh, perhaps unlike some other individual sports, uh, requires you to represent Kansas City, to represent the Jets when I played with them, to represent the National Football League, yes, but also uh, unlike some sports, and certainly with actors who I, and I, I love actors and I love musicians, but they don't tend to always be connected with a particular city. And so football teaches you there's a responsibility that comes with being part of a team and uh, it's, it's sacrifice, it's um, conflict resolution skills, working with somebody on the team or a coach that you don't like or that doesn't like you. And then finally, reading your clippings. Hey, I didn't mind that, but the best thing I ever did was not read my clippings when Marv Levy, future Hall of Fame coach for Buffalo and our coach with the Chiefs, cut the greatest kicker in the history of the game, Jan Stenerud, 
and future Hall of Famer and kept me. So um, I didn't read any clippings. I didn't watch any TV. And that reminded me the best word in the English language to refresh the mind. Boy, is that really what we try to do every day? Reminded me that my control is what I do. That center of the field, that office in our lives, all of us have that we can take control of our emotions, what we perceive, and just take care of this. Because in the end, all we can do is do our best. That's it. Yeah, you know, all of those different elements. I feel like you covered all of the different elements that people need to be successful in life. If you take those elements of sport, mentorship, relationships, leadership, being part of a team, knowing what success looks like to you, there's so many different attributes there that would, would get people where they where they need to go. You've done a lot of work with Native American communities. I want to I want to talk a, a little bit about when you realized for the first time that you were able to make such a big impact in those communities specifically. You know, first of all, you're really good at this. And everybody, t- tell people about this show because he's really good. I've, I've done a lot of these and you are really good. Um, the empathy. So life often is, it's not a straight road. And you, the broken road, to, to, to quote it, rascal flats. Um, and so you stumble into things. And so here's the interesting thing. Went to Dartmouth College originally the Eliezer Wheelock School for Native Americans uh, that was founded with him and the Earl of Dartmouth, very British, Native American school, nothing. I had no real significant role or uh, awareness of what to do or what I could do to help Native Americans. Um, The Kansas City Chiefs, Native American symbology, nothing. Then my my best friend from college, Steve Bova became Dr. Steve Bova at Johns Hopkins and a world-leading expert on prostate cancer. And his wife, Allison Barlow, who'd been an athlete of the year 10 years after we'd gone there uh, at Dartmouth, had begun as the program director for Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. And at their wedding night, sitting next to them at the wedding table, she said, would you start a football camp for Native Americans? We only have so much time tonight, but I remember getting off the bus in Chinle, Arizona on the Navajo reservation. And it was definitely, it was a God moment. It was like, there are no trees here. It's all sand. It's all red rock. And there are these 90 kids for 10 tribes. And I got 10 of my NFL friends to join us. And I just knew I had to do this. I felt this resonance with being an orphan, being an orphan, being ripped out of your family and your community. And I just, you can see, I feel it now. And I love the work I do. Because it's only been reaffirmed a thousand, ten thousand times. But I'm so glad I had that reference. And so I just knew I had to do that work and went back to Harvard. And, and after four years, because you notice with tribes, uh, there's so many issues with teenage suicide and, and really two to three times worse than any of the worst ghettos in America um, teenage pregnancy, alcoholism, and drug abuse, et cetera, gangs. Uh, and yet, there are answers that are there that they know, but they don't. Why aren't they finding a way to turn this around? So at Harvard, I studied the idea of how do we rebuild social capital, which is the deepest values that go way beyond words. How do we rebuild that in a land and in a culture where it has been raped when they have had their history torn from them? Even Abraham Lincoln. I watched uh, the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis just uh, last week. An incredible man, incredible performance. One of the people, well, 
kept our union together. Yet that man who was fighting literally uh, every day he could to keep the union together because of this commitment to uh, equality for of all human beings sent battle-hardened union troops to wipe out the Plains Indians so that our railroad and our westward expansion could continue. So it's never a clear thing. The heroes out there, guess what? They're human too. I'm human. You're human. And, um, you know, but I just love this work, James, because in the end, all of us have had uh, some sense of disability in our lives, uh, whether it's cerebral palsy or whether it's spiritual inability to see and feel. And um, so this work, Native American kids are the same as any kids. Structure, consistency, love, encouragement, and preparation, right? They are the same. If they have those tools and those mentors to surround them and encourage them, um, they know they're loved and beautiful things happen. And it is without question the most unfinished chapter in American history. Yeah, it gives me chills just listening to you uh, talk about that. There's one statistic that I wanted to mention here for people who don't know. Native American youth living on reservations today suffer the poorest health, socioeconomic, and educational status of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S. with the highest rates of suicide, obesity, diabetes, high school dropout, substance abuse, and poverty. So I wanted to uh, just acknowledge you, my friend, for all the work that you do to, to really help elevate that. I mean, the the work that you do, as I've, as I've mentioned several times already, is, is quite extraordinary. These are people who clearly need a lot of help. But I, I think this is a reminder for all of us that um, we all have an opportunity and I believe an obligation to be able to help those less fortunate, whether it's awareness or being able to understand the story or start to make some proactive change to, to help these people. Thank you, brother. Well, uh, the other point of that is in the work and you see the poverty and you see the, the pain and you see the suffering, but you also begin to see people that have found a way out and that appreciate and know. And I, I have people come back 10 and 20 years later out of nowhere and they thank me. And it's so beautiful. All the kids that were 16 when we started it in 1996, they're 41. Now they have one, two, three, four, five, six kids. They have their own careers and maybe just maybe, one or two of them are more confident, more able to believe in themselves, just like that first question you had when I'm running on the field, the fear, what's going through my head. They're, uh, they've created that new music and conversation going through their head that they matter, that they can make a difference, and that they are making a difference. So I love this. And I, I get these tears in my eyes all the time because I just know it's because Back to Think and Grow Rich, I'm doing what I was intended to do. I'm doing what God made me here to do. And it's beautiful because my intuition, my skills, my ability to do it, as we'll do on Sunday with our Champions for the Homeless, our 54th Champions for the Homeless at St. Vincent de Paul on Sunday, it just gets better and better. And to see somebody who's homeless, another example, who's been told or just ignored for year upon year day after day and to note and to see it in their eyes that they feel better about themselves. Gosh, that makes Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter. And we, we've done it. We're doing it eight times this year, not our normal five because we want to do more during COVID, but uh, it's a beautiful thing. And so I'm rewarded all the time and I get to meet great people like you. 
Well, it's a, a little bit of kindness and compassion and support for those who really need it can can really go a long way. And I, I know how proactive you have been during COVID at helping homeless people. In fact, I, I read that you once mentioned that the definition of how healthy a society is, is how well that society looks after the people who have the least. Uh, in LA, where I live, it's certainly getting much worse. The homelessness specifically, it's growing at about 16% each year, which is very substantial for a place that's as big as LA County. Unbelievable. Huge, isn't it? What initially drew you to the homeless situation and what can be done to get people back on their feet and, and stop this steady rise of, of homelessness? Well, first of all, um, there's more than a 22% increase in shelterless homelessness in this country. And uh, so I see it firsthand in, in Phoenix, what they've had to do, for instance, just to get specific, because the angels are also in the details, not just the devil. And when you see at St. Vincent de Paul, that there used to be 225 beds. Now they're only 75. So they put tape around a six feet by four feet area and then they spaced everybody out. So now, now two thirds of the people or more can't be housed. So there are all these tent looking like refugee cities downtown within a couple blocks of St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, why, why do I do it? it? It all connects. It just, they're all human. We are all human. And uh, the interesting thing also is the humanity means you see a real person. So you don't see just uh, a drug addict because there aren't nearly as many drug addicts as they say there are. They are there. Absolutely. Uh, mentally ill. There's a percentage that are mentally ill, but not near. You can reach that real person inside the person that's engaged themselves to protect themselves with some form of mental illness. You see that in there if you look deeply enough. Now, there's some that it takes longer to do that, but for the most part, uh, just the humanity. Uh, and, and once again, it's me learning because we come from such a narcissistic culture and it's getting worse with professional athletes, frankly. That doesn't mean there aren't great people in professional athletes. I'm just saying the social media climate and all the, you're great, you're great, you're great. Uh, it becomes uh, such an enabling culture. Now you're seeing with one of the most popular players in the NFL, Deshaun Watson, being accused by 19 women of, um, you know, sexual abuse of some form. I don't know how much of that or any of that's true, but that's the climate that you're in where if you're not aware of how you conduct yourselves, um, you know, and you think you're all that and more, the Pied Piper, Pied, Pied Piper will come back and he will visit you. So true. We're seeing that in all sports, even in Australia too. It's just a product, I think, of getting so much money, so much exposure, a lot of time off, and I think spending too much time just around um, men in that sort of bro environment, I feel like it can breed some of those those elements, where, especially when you're surrounded by people who are just constantly telling you uh, yes and yes. Uh, you're doing a lot of work on the CBD side at the moment, which was, I remember a dinner that you and I had in San Diego with Stu it was a fantastic time and completely, my, my mind was blown with all of these different things. It was an area that I knew nothing about. Uh, more and more research has come out on that CBD side, talking about how it improves neuroplasticity. Is CBD really the thing that can help stop brain damage in athletes? And what most excites you about some of this research that's coming out? Well, it just continues. In fact, in your neck of the woods, uh, right there in the Salk Institute in La Jolla, Dr. David Schubert, there's all this research they're doing just by themselves about neuroplasticity and about the ability of neurons to regenerate. We did not know that 25 years ago. Now we're pretty clear that we can do that. We can also help others work through their traumas. So there's uh, there are ways to heal that we didn't realize was possible before. Uh, the 
beta amyloids in the brain, which are these clumps of neurons that have collapsed and lost their definition and their robust qualities and collapsed into each other, uh, those clumps of cells uh, can be ameliorated with CBD. Um, it's really important to make the distinction. Quality, pure CBD with really carefully calibrated um, volume, how much, just like anything. Um, but yes, absolutely. In fact, there's another product now coming out at Canaway that uh, we're just opening literally tomorrow in Mexico, ironically, um, and it's called CBG. And CBG binds to the neuroreceptors Stanford University has done research on where they identified a CB1 and a CB2 receptor in the body, CB1 being the neuroreceptors all the way down the brainstem, CB2 in your gut, and CBG binds with those neuroreceptors more effectively than CBD. So that's a new development as well. But there are more than 30,000 papers on there. We have created, everybody write this down, please. Uh, Echo Connection, E-C-H-O Connection, one word, echoconnection.org, and scroll to education, scroll down there, 200 conditions from arthritis to dementia to cancer and on and on. And uh, there are five to 25 papers with, with cancer, there are probably 50 that you can read about. These are the real uh, legitimate white papers, medical white papers. And I've enjoyed being interviewed by uh, over the last five years by journalists who were uh, not negative, but healthy in their skepticism the first two, three years. And now they're, they're just giving me more and more. And, and because you can quote real research, for instance, a UCLA Torrance study, 446 traffic accident victims with traumatic brain injuries of those that had any CBD in their system, they were five times less likely to die of a traumatic brain injury. So my, one of my passions is because I've seen with CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, with Dr. Ben Amalo's work, which is featured uh, by Will Smith in the movie Concussion, um, you know, we're seeing tremendous impact in the ability to turn these neurons to give them five or even 10 times the ability to be neuroplastic. That means that they can withstand impact. That's much more important than any helmet. Helmets can reduce things that have been proved. They can reduce the chances of a concussion by 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%. But what if you can improve it by 500%? So, that's really important. And by the way, for those of you that still don't know this, the U.S. government patent 6630507, 6630507, look it up, Dr. Um, uh, Julius Axelrod, Dr. Julius Axelrod, Nobel Prize winner, and it's called uh, Cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants. So yes, CBD is absolutely should be part of the daily diet. Uh, for people under 40, probably 40 to 50 milligrams, 30 to 50 milligrams or more. And then people over 40, I'd recommend 75. And then if you have a serious condition, somewhere 100 and up. Yeah. So for those who might be watching this or listening to this and thinking that Nick doesn't really know what he's talking about from this perspective, you've worked with three separate US presidents on drug policy. You've also been at the in the trenches with people who have got uh, the drug abuse challenges that we mentioned earlier through through homelessness work. And now you've been, you're the national spokesperson for this company, uh, Canaway. Can you clear up any misconceptions that there might be around uh, general drug abuse or drug abuse that people might think of it normally from a social perspective versus some of these CBD things? 
they are they just totally different fields, or are they uh, what what misconceptions need to be cleared up? Well, number one is um, marijuana is really good for fighting pain, chronic pain, absolutely, and THC is very powerful. But please, there is a distinction between hemp and marijuana. They're two different plants. Hemp is uh, 15 to 20 feet tall in literally 100 days. It will grow to 15 to 20 feet. It's I, I liken it to, let's say, the brother that's seven feet six and has got a crew cut. Not a lot of leaves. And by law, the most THC that can be in a hemp-based product is 0.3% or less. That is about barely 1% of a marijuana cigarette. Barely 1%. That means barely 100, maybe 160th, 170th. And um, it may be raised to 1% THC. That means that the government finally has realized that THC below 1% is not a significant factor. THC has great benefits. I believe there are some things that need to be looked at in terms of addiction, in terms of motivation, in terms of, you know, all the other potential side effects. But THC is you know, when managed can be very good for you. And when you compare it to opioids, it's a joke that we even have this discussion anymore. Opioids kill 100,000 people each of the last two years, 500,000 people in the last seven to eight years. And with COVID, with all due respect to COVID and its seriousness, here we've got something we can control and do something about. And people go to sleep at night raking in dollars for prescribing opioids, which have killed and maimed thousands and thousands of veterans. Uh, I hosted, uh, James, the first, uh, one of the first two uh, town halls on veteran suicide with Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, who is President Trump's director of the Prevents Task Force, wonderful woman who oversaw this cabinet-level task force to reduce suicide among veterans, which most people know now, officially it's 22 suicides a day. Well, in September of 19, uh, 2019, uh, we had this event here, the Franciscan Renewal Center. We had so many experts. The Arizona Coalition for Military Families is extraordinary. A lot of the answers are out there, but it's not 22. Back then it was probably more like 27. Suicide has raised another 20% or more in the country, and maybe 30%, this is on, I think, ABC News about three months ago, among Army veterans. So it's above 30 suicides a day now, 30 suicides a day, not three. So for those that even think about opioids anymore as the only choice, we are in a deep illusion if we're allowing others that are supposedly healers that are sworn by the Hippocratic Oath to actually convince us that there aren't other options we should first, second, and third try before we go to opioids. For sure. And it's amazing actually over here in America that there are still so much money, billions of dollars spent on pharmaceutical advertising targeting the consumer directly. Where in Australia, that's that's banned as far as I as far as I'm aware. It seems odd that these pharmaceutical companies who are profit from these people being being sick and, and prescribing these opioids are still able to to advertise directly to the consumer as well. Uh, lately, a lot of people have, have lost their jobs, marriages, even loved ones as a result of what's happened in the in the pandemic. How can people find the inspiration to move forward when they feel like all hope is lost? <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm very proud to say that my foundation, uh, 
made Phoenix the first city in the country in late April to provide free COVID rapid tests. Cella was then the, the finger prick Celex test, 93% um, accurate uh, with about a 10% false positive back then in late April. And uh, we provided free tests for the homeless. I'm very proud of that. I never was really afraid of getting it. I don't know. I felt like whatever God was going to protect me. I don't know what it was. But literally, James, the first 200 tests, and this happened in Jacksonville with the homeless in several places, zero positives out of 200 tests that the beginning. It's, it's gotten worse yet. So when we go to the homeless shelter on Sunday, we, we are responsible and we know that it's, you know, it was at 7% positivity rate. We think it probably is down to about 4% now, but it's still real. Um, but how to stay positive? Well, the ingenuity of the American people. The most important thing is I'm not very positive about uh, network news right now because none of them ever, ever, ever um, seem to want to do anything about immunity and do stories about natural and basic human uh, immunity like D3, like elderberry, like uh, nitrous oxide, um, like zinc, about 100 milligrams a day of zinc. Uh, like copper, chelated copper for absorption of zinc. I mean, and moderate exercise, sunlight, yeah. fresh exercise, air. Exercise, proper nutrition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the way to stay positive is 90% or maybe 95% of all of this is based on a healthy immune system. If you have a healthy immune system, you're not going to need to go to the hospital most of the time. Getting back to Native Americans, diabetes um, and obesity, uh, I was talking with uh, the head of the fire department and the EMTs uh, from to Tombstone, Arizona, Wyatt Herbs country. And uh, they said 90% of the people that they're getting on ventilators and are you know close to death if they don't die um, are obese and have diabetes. The Salt River tribe and the Gila River tribe right here in Arizona, right in the Phoenix area, have the two highest rates of diabetes in the world. So those people are vulnerable. Let's be intelligent about who's vulnerable and make sure we provide extra resources for them. The elderly, comorbidities in general, lung issues, um, heart issues. Uh, but there are lots of things now. There is information. Unfortunately, you tend to have to look for it because our wonderful friends in the news want to tell us who's dying, how many cases there are, but not so much about immunity. By the way, here's another example of that. Dr. Kara Christ, the health director for the state of Arizona, for the governor, Ducey, was asked by my friend, because I asked them to ask her this, you know, you're telling us about total cases. So right now it's 30 million cases. Well, guess what? The actual incubation period, hence when you go um, and you're quarantined is two weeks. Let's exaggerate that and say that's a month. You divide it by 12 and the number of current cases must be a heck of a lot less. So we asked her, because it was about 300,000 at that point in Arizona, how many actually have contagious, that's the key word, contagious cases. And she said, well, it's hard exactly, but probably under 20,000. So you got the news saying 300,000, the director of health for the state of Arizona saying to a reporter of Good Morning Arizona, Channel 3 and Channel 5, under 20,000 probably. So when those numbers get thrown at you, we have to, like Thinking Grow Rich, take control of our minds, be rational, get more information, be able to hold two things, two truths. One, dangerous, potentially fatal. Two, 
not dangerous and, and fatal to the great majority of people if we take care of ourselves and don't do stupid things. And those things that you mentioned about taking care of yourselves are just general things good that are good for our mental health too. So I think that's uh, important to reference. Absolutely. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Well, let's now move into what we call the win the day rocket round, which is 10 questions for some fairly quick answers. You ready for this one, Nick? I'm ready, buddy. <laughs> Number one, what quote inspires you the most? It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled. The credit belongs to the man or woman in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly and comes short again and again and again. And in the end, knows the triumph of high achievement. And if they fail, at least know. Uh, how's it finished? It is not the critic that counts. It is the, oh, or is that the start? I, I know. It's while daring greatly. That's right. That's, That's right. It. So it's to me, of- it's daring greatly, which I think requires us to have faith in ourselves, faith in a higher purpose, and that's Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes. Brilliant. Uh, question two, morning coffee or evening wine? Uh, I've got to start with morning coffee. <laughs> I like wine, but it makes me sleepy, but I love morning coffee. (laughs) Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? You're going to be fine. Just continue to believe in yourself. Don't read too many clippings. (laughs) Great lesson. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Um, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, It is the best book that I've ever read on carefully articulating the distinction in life, the older we get, and this comes back to my, my notion of being soulfish rather than selfish, the choice between growing your will, you're growing your ego, which has a role, as does the will, with growing your spirit. And if you use these God-given abilities to help others, if you use your, them to help you focus and drill down to get better at helping others, that's never selfish, and that always fills you up and enlarges your capacity to help others, which is the most beautiful thing you can ever do. Yeah, it's what it's about. Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Well, I mean, just just the, the, the doubt and the fear of failing. And, uh, you know, to me, when I was trying to make it in the NFL, James, um, there's not just the fear of failure, there's the fear of success. What do I do with it when I get it? And uh, one great thing about being a professional athlete, uh, athletics is you get it, you're either going to get it or not, probably before the age of 30, and most likely usually before the age of 25. I made it when I, for good, when I was 24. And I'll never forget kicking the game winning field goal. I'd been on 2020 with my friend Dick Schapp as the loneliest player in the game, talking about kickers. I'd been in Sports Illustrated. um, And then I'm out there in Hawaii, surreal, when we really did play the game as a full-on game. I was paid, we were paid 10,000 if we won, 5,000 if we lost. Kicked the game-winning field goal. Jack Lambert, toothless Jack Lambert, one of the toughest figures in NFL history, just crushed me. He was so excited we won the game. And then after the game in the locker room, as the cameras, the 20 television cameras and the 30 press left, I felt this huge void, like something's missing. Yeah, I'll have dinner with my buddy Bob Grubb, who was our punter on the team. But it made me realize that I had to intentionally, another great word from Think and Grow Rich, I had to intentionally make and build my goals to include how am I going to share success 
and know it and have a plan now, not when I get it. How do I share my success uh, and make sure everybody that's always been there for me will be there with me? And so when I kicked the game-winning field goal two more times in the Pro Bowl, mom and dad were in the front row. My uh, my nephew was in the front row. My niece was in the front row. My twin sister, my older twin brothers were there. My friends were there. And so those memories, that's why we work so hard to share it with people. It may sound so simple, but make sure your goals include that. Yeah, you can see that's the essence of the contribution that you've been able to make and and obviously continue to make too. Uh, Question six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Failure is absolutely the best thing that can ever happen to you. I mean, it's featured in a book, Rock Stars. I'm I'm in there. I know one of your questions is uh, a book and uh, I'm on page 33 and it's all about mistakes. I believe that uh, my mentor, another big factor, mentorship, at Dartmouth uh, was John Rassius, Professor John Rassius. And I won the first President's Award for Outstanding Leadership and Achievement. Uh, and they asked me to um, name a mentor. It was John Rassius. If you look up the Rassius method, R-A-S-S-I-A-S, John Rassius founded the rapid learning uh, language learning method that has trained all 300,000 plus uh, Peace Corps volunteers over the last 50 plus years. And it was all about get your students to make so many mistakes trying to speak French and German and Spanish and, and Greek, et cetera, and Japanese, whatever, that they get to getting it right because they have the references of how not to do it. We spoke, and his design in the Rassius method was to speak more times in your first class than you used to in the entire semester. And that was all about rewarding mistakes, rewarding the effort, rewarding trying. And, and we had fun. The, the last piece of that is creativity. That if you make the, uh, along with humor, if you make the learning experience creative, humor has to come in there and colors and music. And it, it, it gives you a thousand more dimensions and, and pinballs for your brain to remember and find how it remembers best. So mistakes are the best thing. Errors, faults, they are our friend and we can make them our ally. Yeah, so true. Uh, number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? I would say um, Jesus Christ or Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, to me, um, first of all, Jesus, I think, just would see things that I would never seen and would, would teach me how to love people I can't love. How do I do that and to serve that and to thank him? And then Winston Churchill how do we, with all of the politics in the last year, how do we not remember that without Winston Churchill, we, we may well be speaking Japanese and German here in the United States? So, and of course, he was discarded within six months of the war ending. Yet his ability to articulate our courage and the courage of the British people, um, I, I just don't see how history would be the same. And, and we would be the same without Winston Churchill and his uh, indomitable, indomitable qualities that inspired and continue to inspire millions. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? My brain. I mean, being able to link my brain to my heart, that's the tool. And getting back to that office again, if I can redirect, because most of the time we get in trouble, I'm listening uh, to this right now and I'm speaking to all of you out there. We get in trouble when we worry about what other people think. We can't control them. 
In fact, there's almost always a direct mathematical formula that the better we get and the more successful we get, the more criticism and the more unfair the criticism is. So right up there with fake news is fake or unfair criticism. It just comes with the territory. We have to control ourselves. And as somebody who probably would have been called ADD when I was growing up and full of energy and playing drums and, you know, in theater also at Dartmouth, all those things running all over the place, learning to control my mind and to discipline it when there is so much distraction. And of course, bringing that focus to the practice itself. Joe Montana, his first practice with the Kansas City Chiefs, I knew he would be great. He won four Super Bowls, never lost in 14 seasons. Tom Brady had 20 seasons. And of course, that was a different time. Tom Brady's amazing too. But I watched Joe Montana every pass in practice was perfect. And I mean, per- I'm not just exaggerating. I mean, right there. Wasn't there, wasn't there, wasn't there. It was right there in time, in the flow. He was like a symphony conductor. So um, that was putting yourself in the right place where you love mastery. You love mastery of your craft and you love the work itself because it becomes like that music. Music starts playing in our head and we, we find that groove faster and more easily just by being committed and loving the work. Yeah, that feeling of getting in flow. Fantastic. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Um, skydiving. So I, I, I plan on doing that. I, I had a replaced left ankle. I could barely, couldn't even straighten it out from all those years of planting and hurting it in basketball, et cetera. And uh, I'm ready to do that. Uh, my father was a reconnaissance pilot in World War II for General Patton in Germany. And um, I've just thought it's time I did that. I don't like bungee jumping. That scares the hell out of me. But but I think I could do the uh, the sky jumping. You let me know. We'll do it together. All right. Final, and I'm sure Brandon will join too. Uh, number number ten. What's one thing you do to win the day? Get up. I mean, I, I just think that we have to set ourselves up for saying I've gotten up and I and I made my bed. You know that story. Uh, get up, get your butt up, and just get moving because it's your every day with sunshine. And we have a lot of it here. God, I love Scottsdale, but every day above ground is a day to make ourselves better. How do we fi- define better? Better is growing in heart, mind, and spirit. So keep filling that up. And that's what I call being soulfish. Don't let people guilt you into thinking, because I was being devoted to my podcast, to my book, to this, you know, uh, somehow that was selfish. If it means you abandoned relationships and commitments to your loved ones uh, and your marriage, et cetera, there's a way to find the balance, but always expanding your capacity to be soulful, to be able to help others, to be more aware of others, to be more aware of yourself first. And to have those values aligned so clearly, um, you can get away from those guilt trips that people put you on and and love the idea of expanding every day just because I'm above ground, I'm out of my bed, and I'm having my cup of coffee. Powerful stuff. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Nick Lowry, and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Lowry Nick, Facebook at Lowry Nick, and check out his website, nicklowry.com. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Nick, brother, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, listen, if you haven't noticed it, James Whitaker has a pure soul. He has a great quality about him, and it's not normal. He has a rare quality about him. And that's why I had to come on this show because he's a good man and he has balance in his life and we can learn from him. And I'm so honored to be your friend. I appreciate it, my friend, likewise. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nick Lowry. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. When the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.